Welcome along to the latest edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. With me, as always, John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How's it going? Very well, thank you. We are strapping ourselves into the Leaders Performance Institute time capsule once again. Time capsule? Time machine? I'm not sure. But where are we going, John? We're going back to London 2014, Leaders Performance Summit at the Emirates Stadium, and we're going to be hearing from Kerry Evans and David Priestley. Uh, Kerry Evans is a forensic psychologist who's worked with the New Zealand All Blacks and more recently with Arsenal. Um, and some of our listeners may actually remember Kerry from the book Legacy, the book about the New Zealand All Blacks, where they talk about the redhead and the bluehead, and he currently works at Arsenal. And so does David Priestley, who's the head of psychology and development at the club. And they both have an extensive resume in sport, as the listeners are going to hear. And um, I do wonder, perhaps they met at Leaders. It was at Arsenal. David was working at Arsenal at that point. But uh, I guess that's something we won't be able to answer today. John, you have listened to the session that we're all about to hear. Uh, What takeaways did you have? Well, David, what struck me early on was Kerry said that, and I quote, high performers are in extraordinary situations, but often they are ordinary people and that transition does certain things to a person. And I found that quite interesting because assumptions are inevitably made about an athlete's ability to cope in these situations. And the pair both offer practical examples of how athletes can be helped with impending high pressure situations where the problem isn't so much flight or fright, as they put it, but the risk of freezing at the biggest moments. We are going to be hearing that archive session from uh, London 2014 very shortly. First, though, a plug for our next event um, as far as the Leaders Performance Institute is concerned. 16th and 17th of March in Los Angeles at Red Bull Media House. And we've got a terrific lineup coming together of uh, speakers and perspectives from inside and outside sport. Gene Holmes, Senior Technology Advisor to the uh, Los Angeles Mayor, will be joining us, as will Amy Hayes, Global Head of Learning and Development at Facebook. Chess Grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura will be on the stage as well, uh, discussing how you train for critical moments in sport and when to trust your intuition, uh, and plenty more besides. So uh, do find out more information if you would like to join us 16th and 17th of March in Los Angeles via the Leaders website at leadersinsport.com. Right, John, enough of us. Shall we travel back to 2014 for some audio gold? Everybody, the Brains Trust has arrived. Fascinating session ahead. Um, Welcome both of you from your your travels. Not so far for you, David. But Kerry, um, how do you go from being a, a gritty central defender to a forensic psychiatrist? Uh, so, parallel process really. I've always played sport. In, in fact, football was my first passion. Um, medicine came along, uh, came across here to Oxford and ended up doing a bit of both at the same time. So, uh, carried on, stayed over here, for instance, psychiatry. I guess the link is psychopathy, if I try and think about it. And if we all know that uh, one and a half percent of, of the audience is uh, going to high rating in psychopathy, and you'd find that in football as well. So maybe that's the link. So was this something that was a passion as you were playing your career? Did you see things and patterns that you wanted to study further? Oh, look, I've always been interested in the mind. Uh, that's the passion. The particular thing I'm interested in is performance under pressure. And uh, interestingly, what, what people, the way they behave, and in particular how they decompensate. And I guess there's a link between sport and forensic uh, psychiatry there. 
And how does your work balance the clinical end with the performance end? Look, in recent years, I think there's a growing realisation that uh, you might try and improve function through performance. Some people want to take symptoms away, clinical population. But the reality is that uh, high performers have symptoms as well. So you don't have to go to disorder or diagnosis. But being anxious, being irritable, being angry, not sleeping, all these sorts of things are still symptoms. So in fact, the two approaches cross over. The same methods work, but they're clients, not patients. So I think the same process is very um, functional for both. Uh, and at the root of that, we'll probably get into this, you know, is the fact that people have pasts, uh, whether they're a performer or not. And what you end up having is high performers are in extraordinary situations, but often they're just ordinary people. And, and that transition from an ordinary person into an extraordinary situation does certain things. We're going to come on to the sort of sharp focus of the high performance arena a little bit later, but David, a bit about your background. Started at the ECB, then moving through to Saracens before you came to the Emirates. Um, tell us a little bit about the research that you did that was sort of a bit more rounded with the holistic psychology. Yes, yeah, so I spent um, five years in professional cricket and I was quite nomadic in my role. I would travel around uh, six counties around the north of England and I wasn't very good at my job, if I was honest. Um, so I reflected upon that and approached the ECB and asked them to do some research. And essentially, what I tried to do was understand the narrative of a player, what his experience was, what happened in his life. Um, and over a period of time, I got to understand the kind of issues that, that affect them. I shared that with a range of coaches, um, and their reactions were quite different. Some were highly volatile and said it doesn't matter. They should be able to perform, and some were quite sympathetic and caring and interested. And then lived the life of a professional cricketer over on the, over on the playing side. Uh, and that, again, just offered me an extra layer of understanding. Um, but essentially what I was trying to do was understand everything that goes on and then the best approach to supporting that. There's been quite a lot of, um, in the news about depression in cricket. Um, what, what did you find? It's quite an attritional season for the, the players. What, what kind of research findings did you have? Um, over the course of my research, I think the main thing that I heard in the narratives was an echo of loneliness. I think there were people incredibly lonely within the game. Not everyone, not everywhere, but there were periods of people reaching out for help. Um, what I tried to do was understand how you could offer support to those people who were in that state, who were going through that. And what conditions in an interpersonal relationship would draw out that difficulty and to be able to support it. So the people that you submitted this uh, quite gritty research to, were they ready for that or ready to face up to what that meant? Did it, did it change any structures or any systems? Um, it was a quite of a mixed reaction, to be honest. Um, I had some people in cricket who probably in the room were very interested, um, and in particular still remain interested. But others uh, appeared more dismissive, that it didn't happen, um, and perhaps wouldn't acknowledge the, the findings that I came across. But you know, that, that, that was their opinion, that was their, um, that was their stance. Um, it just occurred to me that within the role I was in, I probably had to go elsewhere to do the kind of work I thought that was necessary. So, so we, we know it's a fairly exposed environment to be an elite performer and, and we often need, you know, the, the, the environment is high challenge, we often need the high support. What kind of practical things could you suggest as interventions for coaches and performance directors to create that environment of high support? 
I think one of the things um, I've learned is perhaps just a way of being in sport as a practitioner, as opposed to any, any kind of doing with people. Um, one of the things I've found, I don't know, quite magnetic to people's challenges is uh, an unconditional empathic uh, approach where I'm not too attached to whether they win or lose. Quite detached, actually. Um, it seems to be able to draw out some of their interpersonal difficulties. So offer a space that's, I guess, I try to make it quite safe for them to come and talk. Um, but as I said, I, what I'd also tried to do was uh, understand the kind of processes within a club that would enhance the development of the people within the club, if you like. And how important is the coach in this? You know, obviously we've got the, the psychologists and the psychiatrists work, working often in isolation with a player, talking about the holistic performance and, and support that's needed at an individual level. But how instrumental and how much do you need to get the coach on, on side to be able to create that environment for the, the team? Immensely. Um, I was very fortunate at Saracens that there was a, a director of rugby called Brendan Venter, Dr. Brendan Venter. And he was a gentleman who uh, believed in values and he espoused those quite firmly. Um, and he kind of lived them himself a lot of the time, which was very helpful. And he gave me the opportunity to drive a notion of humility within the club. Um, and what that meant was trying to create a culture of learning, a culture where people are interested in developing themselves and others. And we tried to create a program in which we could drive this notion of humility. Not to say we were all humble all the time, not to say that people were saints or didn't misbehave. They did. Um, I'm sure they still do, but just this notion of trying to better ourselves within the club during, the, during their tenure there, they develop as a person. So that, that, um, that support and that culture of learning, that growth mindset sounds brilliant. I guess everyone's sitting here saying, okay, I've got a full notepad for the leaders session. What, what do I do next week? So what kind of practical things can we be doing with groups and teams to actually start to create a, a wider support for them while they're in this extreme zone of performance? I think there's a lot going on. Um, there's a lot out there that people are doing. I think one of the things I found useful within the club was to create a programme, but it wasn't particularly a job description, it wasn't particularly uh, anything I did. It was this culture and that might involve inviting people in to talk, where we all got together once a month to hear somebody and their stories and their experience, where we might engage in some form of charitable work. And I often find my relationships with performers and people were better. Um, when I engage in these things, like going to a charity together offered us a, a connection we wouldn't have previously had. Um, um, Brendan worked out that around 90% of the player's time wasn't performing as a player. And he kind of said to me, can you help fill that time with productive behavior? So whether that be study or work experience or whatever, could you do things that would try and develop them as a person away from the game? Do you have to cut the plugs off the Xbox then, or...? I think that was a habit thing, yeah. I remember my first ever session at the club where we put something on, and one player came. Uh, that was pretty disappointing. Uh, but towards the end of our time, and it was never compulsory or forced, they all came. Okay, every now and again people couldn't or, or didn't. But more often than not, there was this movement towards an interest in something other than just a sport, which might have relevance to it, but would be, uh, we could learn something from and take with us. 
And often with a lot of the, the sports sciences, we see so much uh, data and so much analysis that gives us hard evidence as to the sort of cause and effect from, from spending money. Uh, with many of the clubs sort of looking you know, very closely at the budgets, how do you convince a CEO or a performance director that there's actually a valid return on investment for something like this? Yeah, I think it's very difficult. Um, when I was uh, much younger, I, I found myself in front of CEOs in, in cricket. Um, and they'd say to me, what's the return on my investment? And I naively didn't have anything for them. And I never really make resounding promises. But what I asked the players at Saracens, for example, was, did you perceive this improve your performance? Did you perceive this offers competitive advantage? Do you perceive if uh, that you've developed as a person? And, and the statistics were very high, the, the, the player's perception. Um, I think it was around 85% of the Professional players feel it improved their on-field performance because they were doing things away from the game, which was a stat that suddenly interested a lot of people. Yeah, it's really interesting that we, we expose people and I think we underestimate in all of our jobs how much of our identity is taken up with what we do as opposed to who we are. So I think the, you know, investing in these different identities and the other pastimes and the family and the, the downtime that we've got could not only you know, give us a bit more resilience um, you know, in those turbulent times of high performance, but also give us a little bit more balance during the high pressure. Kerry, do you think um, character is enough to, to perform in under pressure? Uh, it can't be the whole story. Uh, so, we all know men and women of good character who, in any given moment, don't perform. We also know people of dubious character who do. Uh, so it can't be the whole story. And just thinking about this and, and some of the information that we've been given over the last couple of days, there's a lot of talk about personality. But one particular thing that you might do uh, in sport, a forensic psychiatrist is bound to say this, is work backwards and, and understand the context in which people are working first and foremost. And this comes down to a state versus a trade type of conversation. So both are relevant, but it depends what your dominant focus is. What I mean by that is, actually in the moment, state shifts are going to occur, individuals and across the team. And that's critical to outcome. And so understanding the nature of that environment is really important. Working back from there is a good thing to do to work out what you should be doing. Personality, by definition, is enduring and pervasive, so it is the same. Actually, the more we go on in psychology and psychiatry, we know that there are um, highly situational elements to that and the more we understand the context and what pressure does the more accurate we can be working back. Now what does that mean? Well in any environment depending on your sport individual team the nature of the ball sport you've got an external environment expectation scrutiny consequence that provides huge stress for some individuals and where does that come from? And of course our performances started when we were this high First time you walk, first time you do anything, you, re you enact uh, a behaviour and that um, elicits a response from the people looking after you. And of course as you go through different groups, family, outside the family, school, you end up going into bigger uh, um, stadia and you're in this sort of situation. The critical thing there is judgement. So for all our elite athletes, what they have to cope with fundamentally is that scrutiny. So that's judgement that's going to be put there. And some people, as we've heard, are more comfortable with that, and some are far less comfortable. But because it's such extraordinary situations sometimes, 
that's the external environment. The internal environment, to deal with that, we make so many assumptions about people's capacity to deal with that. We're not talking about making coffee, although that can be pressurised as well in a competition, of course. We're talking about doing something extraordinary. And if you speak to elite athletes, they'll have done their 10,000 hours breakdown, 7,000 of technical and informal, and they've done the strength and conditioning. Uh, but you'll end up having some people who will give you single figures or a zero around the mental side. They've heard someone talk about it, but actual work that they've done, they haven't done anything to prepare themselves for moments of great judgment. We also know a lot more now about the internal environment. Uh, we've known stuff about the un unconscious for 100 years. We've known more about the way the brain mechanisms work as well over the last couple of years. And that's provided great insights. So that the very thing that we want, which is certainty and control over people, you can't have. Uh, the brain is a non-linear, complex, self-organising system. Uh, and unless we appreciate this thing, those are all the technical words, the things that we're asking it to do in certain situations, we, we shouldn't be going about it that way. What does that mean? It means that small things can have big effects. And unless we pay attention to the right sort of details, depending on that context, you're going to get it wrong. And you're going to be always disappointed because of the variation. And if you're stuck on the outcomes, that's what happens. So to pull some of that together, the more we know about the, the pressure that people are under and the judgement, the more we know about how we react internally to these situations, the more we'll be able to, in a nutshell, try and get people being comfortable being uncomfortable, because that's the nub. In the end, if they're not able to do that, the things that can go wrong, slumps, mistakes, errors, falling off in intensity, team flat, team too high, all those things are explicable within that context. Yeah, it's fascinating. That, that sort of articulating the, the sort of brutal reality of, of the pressure that the group faces, I think is a critical thing. I remember uh, my fascination for sports psychology started in a very strange place in front of 120,000 people in, in India where I was trying to bowl at Sachin Tendulkar and he was smashing it all over the place. But my body didn't feel like mine. And, and strangely, it took about five years for that um, England cricket team to talk about how big was that crowd? How scary was that? Some of us didn't sleep for a week before it. Yet I thought I was the only one in that position that was feeling like mm -hmm. that. So I think having teams talk about pressure is a starting point. But once we understand that we're all uh, in that nervous state, what can we do in the weeks building up if there are coaches and, and performance directors in the room? What, what can we start to do to calm that emotional response and prepare people for high pressure situations? Okay, well this might be uh, counterintuitive, but I, I guess it comes down to a, a push or a pull approach. So just imagine we go outside sport for a moment, just imagine while we've been sitting here we've got a sore tummy and actually it's now getting localised and you've got an acute appendicitis and you want to have that taken out. And you think about where you want the surgeon to operate, zero to a hundred. And I've done this many times and if we ask the audience that and you know, what level do we want the surgeon to be operating at, actually you had it two weeks ago so this is a complex procedure now, full laparotomy, bowel out, you know, what's it going to be like? And we all say we want the person to be, well where do you want them? start from 100 and work back, we stop there. Once we get into those sort of scenarios where there's genuinely high stakes, it's not a sports game, it's not a result, it's life and death, we have certain expectations for people. 
and therefore we prepare them in a certain way. And yet, spoken to some surgeons recently, apart from being the rowdiest crowd I've ever spoken to and the most abusive, the same things happen to them as humans that you've just described bowling to Tendulkar. The same thing. Your body and mind are separated, the execution errors come, decision-making process. Now, if you start with setting the bar high for a surgeon and work back from that, they'll rise to that bar. That's a pull-type system. So that's setting the challenge first. In sport, we, we don't do that so well. We don't challenge people so well uh, in that space. And we start from what we've got and try and muddle forward. Uh, if you set the bar high, that's a great starting point. Because what will happen is that some people will rise up to it and various gradations from there. And I think when you're in that situation, what do you want your surgeon to have dealt with? Do you want them to be able to dealt, deal with the complications that might occur? It goes without saying. We, we don't even say it. So obvious. But this could happen. OK, we'll deal with that. Uh, do you want them to deal with this scenario? Yes. Do we do that in sport? Because actually, that's negative thinking. If you speak to some groups, I'm thinking about all the things that could go wrong, and they see that as negative thinking. But the point is, the context is so clear, you need clear thinking under pressure. You want your surgeon to have done all those things. So positive thinking can be just as distorted as negative thinking. Uh, and the important thing is to be clear about the overview and know what you're doing with the task at any particular place and time. So understanding that actually for a surgeon, what they want to do is look at your vulnerabilities for what might go wrong in the operation rather than just the ability. I've heard the ability discussion here. Is it ability enough? And so rather than negative thinking, if you set the bar high enough in sport, actually what I'm interested in as a forensic psychiatrist is what can go wrong. Uh, and that leads to scenario training and all those sorts of things. But if you have that discussion, then it's not new for you. You understand that those situations will arise and you're better prepared to deal with them with some emotional control uh, and deal with it from there. So I started by saying it might be counterintuitive, but actually by setting the bar high, really high, what that demands is that you focus on your vulnerabilities. There are some sports where life's at stake. Do you think they don't look at those vulnerabilities about what might go wrong? And yet, across most sports, there's a bit of a resistance to doing that. I don't really want to sit in front of me to talk about things that might go wrong and uh, get all anxious about that. So that, that all makes sense. We're trying to pressure test people about the what-if scenarios so that we don't make an emotionally hijacked response. We sort of create a calm, measured choice rather than a reaction. Um, but you've just laid bare this performer that's now sitting there facing his or her worst fears. How do we start to build them back up with the coping skills that they're going to need? Like the surgeon who could take the exam and say, well, if the bowel bursts, I'll do this, this, and this. But actually, when it happens in front of them, it's a very different thing. How, how do we do that in the moment in performance? What, what can we do there? So some anecdotal things and married a little with some, some data and some neuroscience. If you put neuro in front of anything at the moment, you can tell a story around it. So I'm not saying there's a huge weight of evidence, and some of it's a bit cursory. but uh, surgeons make mistakes. So if you want to have surgery, would you have it on a Monday or a Friday? Monday morning. Yeah, morning rather than afternoon. So yeah. we know these sorts of things. So let's not make the assumption that it's all going to, to work out. Uh, the capacity for a surgeon to 
to deal with those situations as they reported back to me is just the same because apparently some of them are human uh, and we have that same sort of response. The idea is the state shift, so you've got to regulate the state that you're in first and foremost. So that's the first task, whether you look at it from a, a nervous system perspective uh, or a psychological trauma perspective, you need to be able to focus attention, not as you were describing, out of sync and you're out of your body and dissociated. Dissociation, by the way, is this fight flight, but on the sports field, freeze is the big issue that you just described there, so you're stuck. You, you do not want that. And so you have to have, first and foremost, a capacity to come back in the moment. Now, the neuroscience over the last few years has told us that, to boil it right down, there are two steps. First of all, this is why it's counterintuitive, you need to rename that state. So many people, many sports people, are not able to name that state, or too scared to. They think that saying, I'm in this sort of state, is going to make it worse. But of course, that's resisting. It is there, whether you like it or not. It doesn't help to go into that state and then pretend you're on the couch and go right down into the weeds. That's too much. But just at a very high level, having a general name for that state is very important. So that's the rename bit. The second thing is understanding that actually sport is attritional. Often it's those moments that are pivotal in deciding things. So rather than seeing that as something to move away from, understanding that, reframing it as some as an opportunity is critical, and that does things neurologically. Uh, look, I, I think most of the audience are aware of the evolutionary psychology now and the difference between the limbic response and the prefrontal cortex response. It, it's all out there, described in, in various levels, but the, the important thing is that is this an emotional, in the moment, fast system response, or is this a more considered, controlled response? By thinking about the name, it's enough just to separate yourself from the moment, in many cases. And seeing this as an opportunity allows things to come back online. So the rename, relabel sort of process or reframe process has actually got a story around it. And I guess with, you know, we can imagine the, the sort of red-blooded males in the, in the all blacks, you know, to be talking in clinical psychology terms, I think would be difficult. but. Um, you know, the red and blue head of, of pressure and calm thinking, I guess, gives a, a, a language to the team as well to be able to discuss these. With all due respect to Red Heads, and I apologise for that. Yes, look, I made this up uh, many years ago with a friend, colleague, teacher, Renzi Hannam, and the important point, uh, and this is a tipping point uh, point, is it's often the same information just presented in a different way. Uh, and if it goes back to the point about thinking about the context initially. When people are out here performing, they can't stop. Can't go and look at a book. They can't go and speak to David about things in that moment. So we need to affect what's going on inside internally in that sort of state. And what we do know is that the limited capacities we have in terms of our consciousness and working memory actually under pressure are just narrowed right down. So we need, we go too complex most of the time. So naming these states is just a very simple way of doing that, and it can't be more simple than there or there. It's oversimplified, but deliberately so. And, and the role of negative memories, if I think of myself standing next to a, a golf ball with water on my right-hand side, I've got lots of evidence and photos of me making a splash. How do we eradicate the negative memories that get activated in, in those moments? Because I guess that's the brain trying to keep you safe and say, go back to safety and rather than walking into the high performance and staying rational. 
my research was in, in memory, so look, this is common ground. I looked at it with violent offenders, and, and the point is that most of it's subconscious. So, unfortunately, we remember much, much less than one percent of our waking life, uh, which is a bit disappointing for some people. So. The purpose of memory, I wish I was clever enough to say this myself, the purpose of memory is to actually forget. So what is it that we do remember? Uh, and what is it that goes subconscious and is within the architecture of the brain that will guide us? And the point that you make is it's trying to keep us safe. So particularly the right brain, the right hemisphere develops before the left and that's about safety. Uh, the left, especially frontal, develops later. Uh, we know that. Achievements and ambition and planning gives way in a big way to safety. So things need to be safe. And in fact, looking at memory, if you look at high performers, it's a common sequence, uh, almost universal, where the problem currently can go back to mid to teen years in the coach. So the things I ask about will be losses, failures, uh, major injuries, uh, humiliations, shame. Those are, the, those are the big areas that I'm interested in and other memories will come up because they're stacked. And inevitably you go back to four, five, six and those sorts of uh, areas with memory. So you can actually work and process memory. You don't lose the memory trace, but you lose the degree of emotional reactivity around it. Not sure it helps you with your golf shot, but. No, I don't know anything like that. Um, maybe there's a golf coach in the room, I don't know. Um, but as we move through that performance cycle, then the review phase seems critical. We've heard about the recovery, the physical recovery and the cognitive recovery from sleep, and that science is really compelling. What, what should we be doing in terms of feedback and reviewing a situation so that we create useful memories or, or a, at least the truth about a situation rather than somebody as an individual maybe catastrophizing it and, and embedding it in the wrong way? Uh. So two things to say about feedback. First of all, if you, if you take golf as an analogy, it's an interesting behaviour that we have. So if you hit a bad shot, what would you do? You would, in terms of watching the ball. What would I do, sorry? I've, yeah, I've just gone blank. So frozen in, in the moment. Yeah. So if you, if you hit the ball and it goes... Yeah, get another whiff, ball. Get another ball. Most people will watch that ball. Yeah. So you're imprinting that quite strongly. If you had a good shot, you just pick up the, the tee and off you go. You don't, yeah. don't look that. So you're a nice, modest guy, yeah. Jeremy. So you wouldn't look bit at a good shot. Bit of a strut, yep. Okay, so now and again you hit yeah. the... Yeah, good. So the, the point is that we often imprint the negative things stronger. Yeah. But let, let's go to feedback. It's an interesting one because, the, again, the data, uh, the, the type of research around this shows that the safest thing to do with feedback is don't give it. And if I can contrast feedback with feed forward, where the progressive people are, this makes a big difference. So if you give feedback, the first thing you do is, I want to speak to you about this. And of course, you're getting a sort of a threat response. That's the potential. And a good going third of people will, will get that. Some neutral, but the minority will be not phased by that. So if you start with the problem, you're already getting a limbic response. So if the first thing that you say to uh, a player is I want to speak to you about this error, this mistake, this performance, it sets them in that state. And we know that you get a far more restrictive response from that. And if you're going to try and drag them forward from that state to now I want you to do this, taking them forward in time now, it's always limited. Feed forward is saying, this is where we're aiming, this is you know, the standard, this is our reference point. Let's work back from there. So once you've spent time doing that with the player, and then you come back and say, now, 
this is where we want to get to, that is a challenge, and where are we now, you'll end up with them positioning themselves far more comfortably. By doing that, that's highlighting the prefrontal cortical response, and then the limbic response is mod moderated to some extent. You don't have to say all the science words, but if you just go in that sequence and work backwards, that contains people far easier. It doesn't necessarily take away the discomfort, because you end up with a gap. Yeah. And then you ask them, what are you going to do about that? Okay, we're going to open up to a couple of questions, so please stick your hand up and we'll just get the microphones over. Dave, does that fit with your sort of thinking that the pressure came up in some of the conversations that you had in your research and then planning, you know, setting the bar high for maybe people transitioning outside of sport after their career? Yeah, for sure. I think um, this notion of pressure and particularly over, uh, well, um, you're speaking there about in-game situations, over a period of a season, over 11 months with two games, three games a week, etc., etc. Um, I guess the, the work I tried to do and the things I tried to initiate within the, within the club and the culture to try and act as somewhat of a buffer to that, to that uh, pressure at times, if you like, that they had something else to do and think about other than a failure or a mistake, etc. Not they didn't deal, need dealing with, but they didn't ruminate on it all evening to the extent that they couldn't sleep and it couldn't, etc., etc. So um, I guess in a way you're trying to help develop their, their skill in how they manage themselves within sport. Great, okay, have we got the first question, everyone on that side? Hands up, anyone? This side, yep. Uh, ask this for uh, both of you. Are there certain athletes that you leave alone, that you just feel that they have a certain approach based on your observation of them and whatever pitch or context, and they would not be receptive to this or it might actually make things worse? Come on, Kerry. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I only work with people who want to sit in front of me, is the brief answer. Because they'll want to need to be there, or need to want to be there, if they're going to go through that process. Uh, and there are people in different sports who have superstitions, and they'll go about things in a certain way. Uh, so some will avoid it because of the discomfort, but believe in the process. Others, we know, just won't believe in the process. They don't think the brain, the minds, whatever you call it, is important. Um, the way I position that with everyone is so that you, you generally, within a team environment, will get three clusters. You'll get those that are evangelical and love the mental side. Their job is to not disrupt the others and irritate them by saying, this is brilliant. You'll get the middle group who've got one foot and one foot out and they're ambivalent and those are the interesting people, and usually the largest group. And you'll have the group that are resistant. Their job's not to undermine these guys who are actually genuinely trying to be, be really good. So what I would do is start off with the challenge and uh, go forward in that way so that if the person really is not just training to compete but training to win, and there's only a few athletes I've worked with that are like that, then they will do everything. And if they don't want to work on their vulnerabilities and they don't think they've got any mental ones, then that's fine. Usually that causes a double bind. And, but of course there are many, and so no issue with me. Do you let people come to you, or do you have a clinical yeah. schedule? Like I, I think um, one of the things that happened when I first started out in sport was this have an appointment book or 
the coach would often try and encourage the person, and it, it never worked. Whereas if I described earlier a way of being in the environment, drew people towards you if they so choose, then that, I think, is a modality that works far better, particularly if you're given time. And we were talking earlier about you know, the practical application of this, so what, what does somebody do? And I'm told there's lots of leaders and lots of uh, people in power in the, in the room, and uh, my experience, the best thing they could do for me was to give me time in their environment in which I could build relationships and contribute to a culture that hopefully and might contribute to the team doing better. I think, I think the message is the worst thing you can do as a sports psychologist, try and force yourself on people. You know, it has to be something that's pulled by the individuals in the group. Another question? Yep, over there. Hi. Uh, how, how early should we be thinking of, of these kinds of, of interventions? So we're, we're teaching the kids the, the technical skills very early. We're teaching them uh, all sorts of other things very early. But um, uh, and mu the reason I ask is that in, in, in music, the music schools teach their kids very early to deal with the pressures of, of performance on the night. It's an explicit part of their training from being seven, eight, eight years old. But when do we do this in sport and when should we be doing it in sport? Or is, 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 is psychological skills just something that are gifted to you when you become elite? I want to start with that, David. I mean, the performance, lifestyle stuff, when, when should that Yeah, happen? look, I, I'm, I'm here to con uh, contribute about this uh, notion of learning and development and personal development. And um, if it was on that, uh, I found that the more that we can engage young people, I don't know if this answers your question, but uh, the more that I can engage young people in things that contribute to their development as a person, regardless of the age, early, whether that be study or anything else, the healthier that would be for them over a period of time. I appreciate that might answer this question. Jerry, is this becoming a more organic part of the performance system now as opposed to, say, five or ten years ago? It was interesting. Look, I know you know the answer to this question as, as well as we do. Um, so, Mr Wenger was speaking yesterday about critical periods in time. And if you think about state control, mental state control, uh, and when that starts, of course, it's very early, very early. And so, look, as an example, some of the audience will be aware of the, the famous marshmallow experiment where you've got four-year-olds, they've got a marshmallow, if they wait 15 minutes, that's a bit of cognitive control there, they get a second one, so the person leaves the room and then you get the little video. If you haven't seen this, look this up. The important thing to understand is that that's highly predictive of what happens later on in terms of people's abilities. Uh, so you can go back there, and that you know, goes back to parenting and all those sorts of things. It depends on the organisation you're with, but in general people are looking earlier and earlier, aren't they, to these sorts of things. It has practical implications because most organisations have academies uh, or reserve teams, underage teams, and you end up going um, back further and further. And one of the things I see is that people are coming into competitive environments where they might be expected to be in a state where they're prepared to win and know what that takes, but of course they haven't had that sort of mental preparation. So it would be far nicer to do that earlier. Uh, I, my personal experience is I've worked with nine-year-olds uh, and you change the language a little, so instead of challenge the word becomes dream, uh, instead of structures it becomes family and coaches and parents and things like that. So you can connect in different ways, you just adapt it. Uh, you might not call that performance, but it's just life skills. I'm not sure if that's in accord with uh, your understanding, but it's certainly those sorts of skills are apparent very early in life. 
It's probably two things as well. The, the, um, the role of a sports psychologist is becoming more prevalent, so that's great news for that holistic uh, support. But also I think coaches are becoming much more aware of some of the practical things that they can do, even Carol Dweck's work around praising the, uh, the effort that the young children are putting in rather than just celebrating talent. I think that's a very simple thing that's had very powerful effects in a lot of places. Question over at the back. Uh, question for both of you. Uh, maybe it's early one, but uh, maybe both of you are uh, active sportsmen. Does your knowledge helps in your performance, or still you are like a like a player? Sometimes angry, sometimes upset. Are you calm and considered, and always a blue head, Kerry? I'm dangerous. So <laughs> be careful. Does it help being a soccer player in New Zealand? Uh, no. <laughs> not really. Oh, look, uh, that's not for me to answer. But uh, look, th there's, there's something about if you're going to work with a group in this space, we're talking about does, does the topic get credibility? And so I think if you've got some sort of personal experience, uh, that helps. I've been doing martial arts for years, so that tends to have more credibility in some space. But uh, football, playing team games, People make assumptions that that's relevant. They're probably wrong. Um, but, look, I think it is relevant. It, it helps me, certainly. One of the things that I emphasise right at the start is working backwards. So if I look at a particular ball code, for instance, in a team sport, then I'm interested in time and space, because that's how the brain or the mind will react, and then how will the early experience be brought to bear in that particular scenario. So I do have a fascination for those types of things. I think it helps with my interest, certainly, and probably my understanding, listening to, I guess, one of the privileges I have is hearing absolute experts talk about their codes, across uh, codes, so I learn a lot about that. Knowing what it looks like through the athlete's eyes is pivotal. One of the mistakes I see, actually, uh, from time to time, don't make assumptions about this, is that with the technology we have, we can show players all the video we like, and why can't they see this space, Jerry? Why can't they see that? And of course, we're looking at it third person. But because I've been in those sort of situations um, and given away a penalty in the 91st minute, know what that's like, at grass level, and then you know what's going on for that person, understand really what that pressure situation is like, then it does make a difference in how you work with them. So it leads to I think probably a more productive, creative line of questioning. Great. Well, I think that's all we've got time. Should we have one more question? Yes. One quick question. Yeah. Um, how would you help an athlete deal with a traumatic sporting event in their life? If there's a big moment where they drop a catch in an important game, would you deal with it in a similar way that you would deal with PTSD or trauma in another patient's life, would you use sort of EMDR, schema therapy, those types of interventions with an athlete? I think that's for you. So yeah, look, the, the question's around uh, sports trauma, uh, and would you approach it the same as PTSD, so that's post-traumatic stress disorder. Short answer, yes. Uh, the majority of the Western world have experienced a big T trauma, uh, so like an earthquake, I, live in Christchurch, we had loss of life through an earthquake. That's called a big T trauma. Uh, that's the majority of this audience here will have had that type of experience through all the classifications. We all will have had little T trauma, looking around and the caregiver's not there, lost, hurt. 
something going on. So understanding trauma as a developmental model is a very useful model for sport because we've got these sort of experiences and based on what I said about memory, it is in there. Uh, and in fact, it's a bit of a stretch, but actually it's called sports trauma in some areas. And those are the sorts of things I pointed to you before. The, the significant physical injuries, witnessing or experiencing, the significant losses or failures, significant shames, humiliations. So what you have there is a memory trace and the limbic response. So you need to decouple those, otherwise the person is going to be too activated for it. Now we've heard about different responses. So terrific panel this morning talking about brain training responses. So you can do it that way. You can also do it um, with other talking methods as well. Uh, you can do it with imagery methods. So there are different ways of doing that, but the short answer is Post-traumatic stress disorder is a good model to understand this. Three clusters of symptoms. There's the re-experiencing symptoms, the imagery, those memories. That doesn't you know, help sports people. Uh, you also have avoidance cluster. Uh, and of course that doesn't help. And then in particular you have the hyperarousal going on. And we know that many nervous systems, in Christchurch now, we have a significant, over half of the population are prescribed antidepressants. Um, believe it or not, SSRIs, in my view, well, probably shouldn't be at that proportion. The key thing there is, is not the full-blown disorder, it's the hyperarousal. So that when people are out in, in certain situations and a truck comes past, then you get the Im immediate reactivity. So you've got to be clever about what you're looking at, what the target is, but as an overall approach, I think it's, it's the same sort of thing. Great question. Well, that brings this session to an end. I think it's been a fascinating insight from both of our panel guests. I guess we all want our performers and ourselves in our own careers to be the best that we can be. And the more we challenge ourselves, we need to balance that with support. But uh, I think often psychology is seen as a soft skill. But I think you've heard today that taking people to those very realistic situations about where the pressure is going to affect them and give them some practical skills to cope in those moments will not only change their lives, but also hopefully change some results as well. So a big round of applause for David and Kerry.